0: So in roughly the last month or so, a little bit over the last month, there have been um, uh, two things that have happened that I wanted to bring together in the talk. Uh, One of them was that the uh, great poet, Mary Oliver, died. Probably many of you knew this. Uh, And I, I brought some pictures of her, photos of her, which I have right up front here. She died on January 17th. How many people knew knew or know her poetry? Yeah, so quite an influence, yeah. And um, the other occurrence of the last month that I wanted to connect with that was that uh, I just came back from two weeks on retreat and uh i've had uh just 3 days back 3 full days back uh was on retreat here at Spirit Rock for about 2 weeks part of the February retreat and have come back I spent most of monday and yesterday um completing my taxes which is an interesting experience after a retreat <laughs> but i'm uh still in reasonable shape and so i wanted to i wanted to explore Um, partly by honoring Mary Oliver the theme of the journey related to her poem The Journey, but focus more generally on the sense of the spiritual journey or the journey of our lives, however we want to frame this, and give some references to some of my own experiences during the two weeks on retreat and, and and afterwards, and I'll, in a little while, we'll I'll read the poem, and then we'll also see it at the end, because I think what you can really find in the poem is a delineation of six or seven stages of the journey, which I would, I want to generalize to refer to six or seven stages of our own journeys, of spiritual journey generally. And I'll also make, I'll also use the story of the Buddha and his journey as a reference point, as well as inviting you to see what are the stages or uh, phases of your own journeys. And I'll, I'll, from time to time, also talk about my own. So the journey is a, very common metaphor for looking at what we call spiritual life. You know, there's a very similar metaphor, which is the metaphor of the path. Very, very similar. And I think, you know, when we, when we ask, like, what is this metaphor about? It's something about going away from one's home, going away from one's habitual life, having certain experiences, and typically, typically returning. For some, it would be a lifelong journey where you don't really return home. But for most of us, it's a journey where you go out somewhere, have certain experiences, maybe come home with certain learning, certain gifts, something that you, you bring back, in in some way. And that sense of taking a journey is certainly applicable to being on retreat. One leaves ordinary, habitual life. You go into, in a sense, the unknown, have certain experiences. And often, and it's been my experience in doing retreats, that I typically come back with something learned some kind of gift, something that can inform and deepen uh, my daily life. And I think we could even see that even one period of meditation is a kind of journey. We leave our ordinary minds to some extent, (laughs) to some extent, and we encounter moment to moment reality, hopefully in a fresh way, and hopefully learn something that we then can apply, bring to our lives. You know? And so we, in a sense, we may take a journey every day or even multiple times during a day, a kind of journey. Right. And journey is one of the metaphors we use for spiritual life. We've sometimes used others here on Wednesday morning. We've used the metaphor of awakening. It's a common one, awakening from being asleep is another metaphor. Another one that we have used uh, sometimes is seeing through the veils of illusion. These are all metaphors, right? They're getting at something. You know, Other ones might be purification. We purify ourselves or we liberate. We reach liberation. These are all metaphors or we come to wholeness or we, or we go to our source these are all ways of trying to talk about things or we another metaphor sometimes used is we come home you know or we find our place on the tree of life a lot of metaphors we could take the whole year and just you know do you know 10 metaphors it would be illuminating right it's a very interesting way to look at things and so but the sense of the journey is a very very ancient metaphor for spiritual life. Uh, in indigenous cultures, one would go on a vision quest where you would go out from the life of your community. Or in Australian aboriginal culture, there's the walkabout where you go into new places and you find, you find things. Um, in the Chinese tradition, the whole sense of the Tao, it's really, the, it's really the, the term is really, uh, could be translated as the way. So it has something to do with a with journey. Uh, one Taoist master named uh, Tu Lung said, one who travels does so in order to open one's eyes and open one, one's ears and relax one's spirit. This is what you do on a journey. We could say that's what you do at Spirit Rock. You know, uh, you, know you, um, you close your outer eyes in order to open your inner eyes and your inner ears and relax your spirit, right? So it's very nice. Um, in the ancient Indian, Asian Indian tradition, the, in the Upanishads it said, long and narrow is the ancient path the path by which the wise, knowers of the timeless, attaining to uh, liberation, depart hence. It's a very, very old metaphor, you know. And so in the uh, Hebrew Bible, you have the metaphor of the Exodus from slavery in Egypt. You know, uh, The Exodus is a kind of journey from bondage to freedom. You know, and that's been a primary metaphor in song and in other things, especially I think in the African American liberation movement, a sense of coming to liberation from bondage, and all sorts of other ones. I, I had I looked these up, and it was kind of fun. Uh, Jesus at one point says, "I am the way." Right? There's a sense of a sense of movement and so forth, and. Uh, Walt Whitman the poet says I am afoot with my vision I tramp a perpetual journey <laughs> and then the last reference I would make is just thinking about especially in the 1960s but he, he nowadays as well many people took trips it's a theory. Why did they choose that word? It's really using the same metaphor, you know. So we could take, you know, we don't, we don't use that metaphor in our publicity material for Spirit Rock, you know. Come to Spirit Rock and take the ultimate trip, <laughs> but we could. Uh, I think I think we're getting getting in that direction. So I'll, I'll read Mary Oliver's poem and listen, if you can, for different stages of the journey, and then I'll try to bring those out. You know, invite us to look at how those apply to ourselves. And, and I'll also make some references to Life of the Buddha and my own retreat. Right? Because there is a way in which, uh, yeah, in a way in which being on retreat is, has aspects, all of these aspects of the journey. I'll try to bring those out as well. So The Journey by Mary Oliver. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. Though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried. But you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations. Though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones, but little by little as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world determined to do the only thing you could do determined to save the only life you could save i think we can find in the poem and we can find and certainly i think in the life of the buddha and i think in the general sense of uh, of a spiritual journey I, I, I identified seven stages, okay? So here they are. The first is when we're more or less taking life for granted. This is like the starting point. Taking life for granted, we're with the ordinary and the habitual. That in a sense is a starting point. The second stage is when there arises some sense of unsatisfactoriness or inadequacy or questions about our ordinary and habitual lives. Something something doesn't quite feel, um, what, authentic or true to my spirit or whatever language we use. And sometimes that sense of uh, um, question or unsatisfactoriness can come because we experience some kind of suffering or loss. That can be, you know, everything was going along fine and there's a huge loss or even a moderate loss and something shakes us up, right. the th- and Related to this is a third stage which is some kind of call for something more than the ordinary life. Something calls us. The fourth is some way in which we depart from the ordinary and the habitual. And again, I'm going to say that we do this in all sorts of ways. Sometimes we do this for a period of time. In some ways, as I was suggesting, meditation could be understood as taking this journey in a half an hour, right? Because you can listen for all of these stages. They apply in different ways. They apply when we have these year-long or five-year phases of our lives. They also apply for a week when I do a retreat. They also can apply for an hour of my life. So listen for these stages in those ways. The fifth stage, we could hear this very explicitly in the poem, is when we find find something, we find some sense of our own authentic being or voice, Uh, often because of working through difficulties, some kind of purification process. And really related to this, I'm separating the stages and calling the sixth stage a stage of uh, awakening to some degree. And of course, when we look to the Buddha, this will refer to full awakening. And then the seventh stage, the last stage, is uh, re entering, in a sense, the everyday world, the quote unquote ordinary world, our ordinary lives, re entering that. So there's a, so again, seven stages. I'll go through these and I'll invite us again to see how we would apply the different stages to our own lives. So again, I'll go through them just so some of you I see are taking notes. What's number six? What's number six? Okay. okay, So the the first is taking life for granted. The second is having some sense of unsatisfactoriness arise. The third is a call for something more in some way. The fourth, and these for some of us, these could be very much interconnected and not really look like a distinct, stage. The fourth is departure from the ordinary, the everyday. The fifth is in some way uh, going through difficulties and finding our authentic voice. The sixth, again, could be very related to that, is awakening to some degree or other. And the seventh is re-entering the everyday or the ordinary world. Okay, so... I'll, I'll go through these and think of, again, think of how they, they work for you. So, really the starting point is whats is what I've called taking, taking life for granted. It's being with our ordinary, conditioned, habitual minds. Again, even if we've started on a spiritual path, our ordinary habitual minds are um, there a lot of the time. You know, our brains, as we've sometimes explored on these Wednesday mornings, are really geared for habit. You know, we like habit. The brain, as I once said, one neuroscientist once said, the brain does not like consciousness. <laughs> it likes everything to be automatic. And I was I was exploring this this morning. I was I was noticing. That when I shave, and this won't apply to everyone here, but <laughs> when, I, when I shave, I always start my shaving on my left side of my face. It would feel really weird to start on my right side. Functionally, there's zero difference, right? But it's a habit that I've done countless times. And there's something like that in so many parts of our lives, you know. We have habits of how we do things, you know. You know, whatever, uh, brushing our teeth. Uh, you know, aspects of all sorts of things. Breakfast, how you make your bed. You know, countless, right? And and so we live with a very ordinary and conditioned mind a lot of the time. And of course, one of the uh, we'll see one of the aspects of the journey is that we leave some of those habits behind, but. And so some of the habits are there even if we've taken on a spiritual path, you know, that we live with that ordinary mind. But the the first stage is also referring to having that sense of ordinariness and habitual be like uh, uh, all the time, be like we're just living according to what was mapped out for us by the culture, by our family, whatever. There's a way that we're not really necessarily reflecting too much. Sometimes it's because our ordinary lives just involve a lot of stuff to do. Work, raising a family, uh, taking care of things. I find that one of the times I'm in most in my habitual mind, and I could feel this shifting away into the retreat, is when I have a lot to do. It's just a lot. Get this done. Get this done. Get this. I could feel that, uh, you know, preparing my tax, my taxes. <laughs> right. It's just like you know, there's a lot to do, and the ordinary mind's like, okay, let's do it. Like, and and get a list. And is that familiar? <laughs> right. And so, and so, the, and the ordinary mind, in that sense, isn't necessarily negative. Right. It gets things done, but it's uh, not always so awake. Right. Even when we are getting things done in a good way, we're not necessarily even present to our experience. We may be <clears throat> very much in the future, right? And a lot of what our meditation practice is is actually getting really familiar with those, or that ordinary mind, right? We watch it, you know, we sit there. Let me just be with the breath, fresh with the breath, and then we watch our ordinary mind take over, right? Right? Let's do this, let's do that. you know we, want, and we notice we can you know one of the benefits of meditation is we actually see uh, aspects of the ordinary habitual mind, and to some extent, we have some choices about uh following aspects of it i I, I like to talk about when my first meditation experience, I got to see how much my uh, mind uh, plans, right, which is uh, you know. It's not a bad thing to be able to do well. (laughs) It helped with my taxes. (laughs) Uh, But I, you know, uh, I would say when I was first meditating, I did it excessively. You know, and so many of us, we live in our planning minds, right? And I concluded uh, planning is helpful, but I could do it 20% of the time and it would be enough, right? Right? So that's, we may see that when we meditate. We may see, oh, here's the... Ordinary, habitual mind. I'm getting a little bit into stage two, you can see. But but the first stage is when we're sort of enmeshed in something that's pretty habitual. And this, this was the case of the Buddha. The Buddha was protected by his uh, parents. His parents had a prophecy that he would be either a great ruler or a great sage. They preferred option number one, Right? because uh, they, you know, they wanted him, you know, he was from a royal family. They wanted him to, as it were, keep on with the family trade, <laughs> right? And so he was, uh, protected. His parents thought that one way to avoid him being a sage is to have him only have good experiences and really like the royal life of a ruler, right? So he was actually a very protected environment. His, his parents, um, uh, sheltered him so that he saw almost nothing negative, no pain, suffering didn't see signs of death or dying and he uh, he He said later, I was most delicately brought up that was that was what he said later and so That can be the case for a lot of us, you know. So some aspect of that habitual is being sheltered from some of the rawness of life. So that's that's stage number one, right? And um, in a way, that's the starting point. Second stage is we have some sense of the inadequacy or some sense of being called for something beyond the ordinary. And you wouldn't be here, we wouldn't be here unless there's something like that, Right? You know, why come to Spirit Rock, sit and do nothing when you could catch up on your emails? It's a big question, (laughs) right? And so at some point, for various reasons, there may be a sense that there is something more that our habitual lives and our conditioning um Maybe has a hole poked in it. Something pokes a hole in our habitual life, and we sense there's some. Maybe we have a friend who goes explore something. and say, "Hey, that's pretty cool," you know. Or, or we sometimes again there can be some difficulty. Makes me question what I had assumed. You know, I have a loss, and I uh, say, you know, how do I face the fact that I will sometimes die? I just don't want to look at it. Do I want to live like that? Maybe I, you know, or maybe we, you know, have a loss of a parent and we are, you know, like, you know, many of us have talked sometimes about actually witnessing death close up and it can change your sense of things. You know, or you have some kind, maybe you have, you meet people or you 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 go on a trip or there's some sense of, Something makes you wonder about life. I know for me, uh, growing up, I was um, really confused by the cruelty that I sometimes saw around me. And maybe this was it you know, for you also. You look, you know, what is this about human life? Look at all the suffering. You know, look at all the craziness in the world. Look at how people are so deluded in many ways. What's going on? You know, look at the wars, the conflicts. Is there something better? Is this what human life is about? Is this, should we just be resigned to all of this? And for me, it was actually like the cruelty of kids to each other. It was really shocking. Like, what's going on? And I also grew up, um, you know, where I went to uh, elementary school with people who mostly lived in a community on the other side of the railroad tracks, so and they were African-American. And I would go there sometimes. And this was in Maryland, And it was just after schools were desegregated. And it was, you know, uh, there were not paved roads and there were a lot of shacks. And what was this about? You know, people who I went to school with were living in a very different way. And what was this about? You know, the injustice of this. It really raised questions. You know, maybe you've had experiences like that, social experiences or more personal experiences, you know. And... uh, you know, I learned about the Holocaust when I was 10 years old, right? And I was like, whoa, what is what is that about? What is that about human life? And so um, there's that sense of some kind of question, wanting more or having a sense. And sometimes maybe something comes through dreams. You know, dreams can waken us up and say, yeah, maybe there's something else. Again, but for some reason, there may be a question that we have. We may want, we may be interested in, uh, we may be interested in the uh, possibility of living in a different way. You know, and in, in the poem, we, you know, in the poem it says, uh, let's see, in the poem, uh, it says, one day you finally knew what you had to do though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. And we could say, what's the bad advice? That's the habitual voice, both inside and outside, you know. Because you, what you'll notice is that when you start to change or question things, you'll get pushback. Have you noticed that? You'll get internal pushback and you'll get external pushback. We could say, you know, that's what the bad advice is, I think. That's how I like to interpret it in the poem. The bad advice... Is what we tell, keep telling ourselves, and it's what other people tell us, and that keeps happening, you know. So we could ask ourselves, what were for you? Or let me let me, let me say one more thing: for the Buddha, what woke him up in the text is what was called, what's called the four messengers. For some reason, the Buddha over four successive days. Had curiosity of some kind, and he wanted to go. He had never really been outside the walls of the palace. And again, he was very protected. And on four successive nights, he went outside the walls of the palace. On the first night, he met someone who was ill. He had never experienced that before. Oh, look at that, there's illness. The second night, he met or he saw a dying person. He had never experienced that. The third night, he saw a corpse. Never experienced that before. The fourth night, he saw a wandering yogi, someone dedicated to the spiritual path. Had never seen that before either. Never noticed any of those. And he was, in a sense, woken up from his um, habits. And he, deep, uh, intense questioning arose. Is, the, is this just the fate? Everyone lives a habitual life, gets ill, dies and turns into a corpse. Is there something beyond that? And he went on a kind of a quest. But his wake-up call were those four evenings? And so we could ask each of ourselves, what were each of our wake-up calls? What woke you up? What were your, you know, in the Buddhist tradition, these are called the heavenly messengers. What were your heavenly messengers? What woke you up? Actually, it would be interesting to hear, can you... Can you just say uh, in a phrase, not a whole story, but so we can hear a few people, if you can say in two or three words, what was a wake-up call for you that took you out of a kind of sleepiness? Let me just, anyone like to, My death. what? My father's death. Father's death, Yeah. Yeah. Becoming a single mom of an infant, something you know, yeah. shocking about that in some way, but questioning. My children. Children, yeah. My children, yeah. yeah. Driving south with an African-American friend and seeing what, was, what happened. Driving south with an African-American friend and just witnessing what occurred, right? Yeah. Maybe one or two more. Yeah. The AIDS, the, the AIDS epidemic in the 1980s? Yeah. Just a wake up, yeah. Last one, yeah. Um, looking out the window of my Montgomery, Alabama school and seeing the
1: African
0: American children in you know, a literal shack outside. Yeah, looking out the window of school, did you say? in Montgomery, Alabama and seeing African-American children playing and their schoolroom was a shack, right? Yeah, Yeah, and I'm sure a lot of those echo or, did, did you have one? Yeah. Yeah, just a few words if you can. Yeah. Sure, uh, the suffering of? Animals. The, suffering of, of animals. the suffering of animals, yeah. Witnessing the suffering of animals, so how many can relate with one or more of those that you heard that is similar to what you experienced yeah yeah, so that 's the second stage. Something brings us questioning we we're not, things aren 't resolved, uh, but we um, we have a sense of something that can be can be fuller. Um, And they're, they're, you know, kind of related to that is what I'm calling a third stage, a call for something more. You know what you had to do. Uh, One doesn't want to stay in the old life in some way. And again, some people make radical changes. Some people, it might be that you start meditating or you start doing something. You have your habitual life 95% of the time and you are a little different. You know, people do it in different ways. This, But there's an internal call to, to do something that takes you out of the habitual. And what's interesting is that we can hear this call many times. You know, In the poem it says, one day you finally knew what you had to do. Probably for many of us it's like, one day I finally knew what I had to do. And then another day I finally knew what I had to do. And then 116 days later, I finally knew what I had to do. And then five years later, I finally knew what I had to do. And 16 years later, I did it. <laughs> right? It's sometimes like that, right? You hear the call. Oh, how many? Can, how many can relate to that? You hear the call over and over again, uh, and you know. And sometimes we say, "Why didn't I do that?" But it, it's you. You hear that call. So we and. And the Buddha was sort of distinctive because he heard the call and he just skedaddled. <laughs> you know, he left the palace and he just, he had a, a wife and kids, right? So there, was, there was some, in our time we might say there's some issues related really to that. But, <laughs> but you don't find that in the text. <laughs> okay. Any case, but actually in the... Uh, in China, this is a little footnote in China, uh, the Confucians used to criticize the Buddhists and say, "You are following someone who left his wife and kids." It was like part of the Confucian polemic in China against the Buddhists it 's interesting <laughs> anyway um, historical footnote okay so um, so we hear the call you know and it's interesting like where did you and sometimes we hear the call from others it may be even you come to spirit rock something inspires you you know you may it may come from dreams you know i i remember and sometimes it's just something echoes i remember when i was 20 years old i was in college and the teacher uh, ramdas before he was famous came to my university and he was like fresh from coming back from India. And for some reason I I saw this and I w I didn't know anything about spirituality. I was kind of like a political activist mostly in college. You know. And but something was interesting and I saw this sign, it didn't cost anything, you know, and it just said, Come, you know, meet and there was like ten people there. It was just and and we just hung out for on like four straight days for like four hours at a time and I probably had no idea what he was talking about, but something was calling, right? It was interesting, right? It was something, and we can have those kind of experiences, and maybe you are remembering something. You know, where did you, something echo for you? You heard some call, and could could be, again, could be a lot of these different areas, social justice, spiritual, vision, whatever. So we hear, you know, we hear that at certain times. There's some kind of some kind of call. And again, it can be in this more dramatic way, or it can also be the call, I need to meditate more. Or it could be, it's time for a retreat. I'm getting a little bit overloaded. You know, if you, if you, if you do retreats, you get, can sometimes know, you know, I, I work one on one with a lot of people, and I often hear the, the, the sentence, I need a retreat. <laughs> Which means there's a certain uh, way that the call has become a little bit. Buried by everyday life, right, and not as uh, prominent or alive in one's life. <clears throat> so again, interesting, just to ask, what, what, you know, where did I hear that call? Again, very, I think, very connected with what we looked at earlier. You know, that what sort of uh, made made me want to look for something deeper or something, something more. At some point, again, this, this in our in our lives, this is going to all take different forms. What have in the poem and in the life of the Buddha, the fourth stage is a departure from the ordinary life. You know, in the poem, uh, Mary Oliver uh, leaves the house. You know, uh, she leaves all the voices. The whole house began to tremble. You felt the old tug at your ankles but you didn't stop. And she goes off into a storm, right? It's not an easy situation. It was a wild night. It was late enough, she says. (laughs) I should have left earlier maybe, (laughs) right? But there's a departure. You know, again, sometimes the departure is more external. We actually shift something we do with our life. That's what it was for the Buddha. The Buddha left home. And he embarked on six years of trying to find spiritual teachers and work with them. He did that for a while and then he was on his own. And so we depart in some way. Again, it might be more of an inner departure. Maybe there's a sense, the center of my life is now more about these values. You know, So maybe it's more internal, right? And it can take some time to work out externally. But maybe there's some inner shift that we feel. That's what the departure is. Sometimes it's more external. Sometimes it's more the, the form of our life, you know. Sometimes we, again, sometimes uh, it's, we can see this departure just in the daily meditation or a retreat. I depart from my ordinary life for an hour or for me for two weeks, right? And I let myself be organized in a little different principles, you know. Going on retreat. And I had a very, I had a very nice setup. I was... Um, in a cottage i wasn't in the dorms this time i was jack cornfield has a little cottage near the dining hall which he sometimes lets people stay in and i stayed there it's a, it's in the forest about you know 2 or 3 minute walk up in the forest from the dining hall so i more or less stayed there meditated the whole time and walked 2 or 3 minutes down to the dining hall for my meals <laughs> it's kind of cushy <laughs> And then, after the meals, I would take a walk or something, and uh, you know I did my work meditation, which was mostly cleaning bathrooms and sinks, which was very nice <laughs> and uh, so that would be that 's a kind of departure we depart we take you know we take a voyage, we do a retreat there 's a kind of a, a way we do that daily or we do that periodically something happens we we uh, we depart from the ordinary. So again, you can think of what have way, there, what ways have I, internally or externally, departed from my ordinary habitual life? Right. We can look at that. Again, sometimes it's even maybe things happen. We didn't do it, or, you know, by on purpose. You know, like uh, some people I know, Jack Cornfield to, to use an example. He joined the Peace Corps and went to Thailand and he, and he learned about buddhist meditation which he did not know he was going to the peace corps to help people right and then something happens on the voyage which opens up something else so sometimes the departure isn't always by plan right it can just happen let's see so fifth stage, let me see where my notes are for the fifth stage. Uh, fifth stage is we start to find our authentic voice. This is really the theme of the poem. You know, Little by little as you left their voices, you know, which I would interpret as the habitual mind. As you left the habitual mind before, you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds and there was a new voice which you slowly recognize as your own. Your own authentic voice, something happens, and this can happen with difficulty sometimes you know on retreats or voyages or being with loss or difficulty um, it 's not just all a easy voyage when I first meditated was meditating, I thought that I would just meditate, have a really great time, get awakened, and there really wouldn 't be any problems. Anyone had something like that notion. I think, as I've sometimes joked, you know, you could read the Spirit Rock promotional literature and think that there are not that many ups and downs, right? But anyone, anyone, not experienced any ups and downs yet? Okay, um, they are. And so I'm, I'm thinking of the fifth stage as where you go through the purification process of the journey. You learn, go through difficulties. It might be in meditation. It might be outside of meditation. You are willing to be with difficult experiences you know and i've uh, you may hang out with anger, you may hang out with grief, you may hang out with despair, you may hang out with self judgment self hatred right, and we do these we have to go through this is, this is sort of what we go through it 's almost like I was thinking of the Native american gauntlet right it 's like we go through this you don't find your own voice and come through to more awakening without going through difficulties. And actually the story of the Buddha, lot of difficulties. We don't there's not so much so well known often. But he had enormous difficulties, you know, and he tried all sorts of things. He had self-doubt. He had, you know, which were kinda of in the in the text, it's almost like voices telling him, you haven't really done this, you know, you're not adequate. He had physical difficulties, which were very intense. You know, he got very, very weak, uh, and so forth. And so, he had a lot of, lot of difficulties. And you find this, and so that being willing to be with the difficulties is this very crucial part of the, of the journey, right? And here, it's kind of symbolized by a wild night, a road full of fallen branches and stones. You know, it's one way to look at it. The Sufi poet Hafiz says, don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. Let it cut more deep. Let it ferment and season you as few human or even divine ingredients can. Uh, Another similar poem from David White. Those who will not slip beneath the still surface of the well of grief, turning downward through its black water to the place we cannot breathe, Will never know the source from which we drink, the secret water, cold and clear. They will not find in the dart the darkness, glimmering the small round coins, thrown by those who wished for something else. And that really connects with the sixth phase, which is that of awakening further, coming to you know here. You know, in Buddhist tradition we would emphasize qualities of wisdom, compassion, presence, awakeness, you know. And the the fruit of the journey is that we keep on awakening, we keep learning, right? And it's gradual in many ways. You know, the Buddha did six intense years of practice and according to the accounts had full awakening. You know and I, I think for us, this is more I, you know especially when we think of uh, daily meditation as a journey or a retreat as a journey, we have certain insights that we come to. you know we learn certain things, and we then in the, in the seventh stage, that we come back to the world, we come back to our everyday lives and we bring insights and we bring gifts. you know and I can still feel the kind of the energy of my retreat, two weeks just really being completely focused on being present, awake, seeing clearly. You know, I did a variety of practices. I did a lot of practices just of keeping a very wide open awareness, you know, all the time as much as possible. When I was in the dining hall, I did loving kindness practice for my other fellow retreatants all the time. That's what I did in the dining hall. It's really, it's a great practice, you know, and, uh, I did a lot of uh, inner energy practices, a little bit like Qigong, some other, uh, which I won't go into detail on. And um, I did a little bit of practice, which was really important for me. Every day I did a little bit of time on a computer trying to bring mindfulness and awareness to being on a computer. This is not what we ordinarily offer at Spirit Rock. But for me it's been an important practice. I could also do it because I wasn't bothering anyone. And... uh, because that, for me, is like uh, an edge of learning. It's hard for me and for most people to have awareness on the computer or with electronic guidance, or gadgets. Anyone find that hard as well? Right. So someone's going to write a text, so to speak. <laughs> Funny metaphor. Someone's going to write a text about the spiritual journey with electronic gadgets, right? Right? Anyway, so that was also one of my forms of practice. And then we bring back the gifts. So I can find, I come back, I do some computer work. I'm a lot more aware. I have a sense, oh, I can just be really present. Part of it means not being in a rush, not trying to do too much. It involves a certain slowing down, but it really is possible. So we come back, this last stage, we come back with gifts whether it's our half-hour meditation or a two-week retreat, we come back and we have gifts and insights that we come back to with our lives. And that's really that last stage. And then we, you know, and we keep on bringing it, we keep on, you know, in a sense our lives, we may go on big journeys, we may go on, you know, two-week journeys, we may go on half-hour journeys, we may go on one-year journeys, but we always come back and there's, Creativity in that. Uh, the British historian Toynbee says the, the hallmark of cultural creativity is having in a culture cycles of withdrawal and return. This is what shamans do. This is what uh, the cultural leaders do. You know, uh, you know, Moses goes into the wilderness, whatever. Jesus goes into the wilderness, right? You come back. Cycles of withdrawal and return going on a journey. And you come back with gifts. So let's end just with the reading of the poem again. And you can listen for the resonances that we've explored. The Journey by Mary Oliver. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough, and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized, as your own, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. So thank you, thank you, Mary Oliver. And um, let's just sit for a moment and we can maybe reflect on what comes to you Maybe any question or reflection that you have. And we have some time for any reflections. It could be to tell a story, ask a question. And we'll bring them. We have two microphones, and we'll bring them to you where you're sitting. So just can raise your hands. The first one's on my left. I just wanted to say
1: that's one of the best teachings I've heard, and I really wanted to thank you.
0: Thank you. Did the stages resonate? They're, and can you see how they're both something that could be over a long time, but also in, right in every day? We take journeys every day, and you know, we think of going into dreams or just meditation. It's interesting. Yeah, please. Yeah, yeah I want to echo that. Just a wonderful teaching, so
1: practical, and yet relating it to the Buddha is beautiful. But I have a question here in the poem. And you'll see that it says, they kept shouting their bad advice, so the whole house began to tremble, and you felt the old tug at your ankles, mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. So that's a part where I'm getting a little confused, because yeah. <laughs> the voices are saying, mend my life, yeah, but then you didn't stop, so it seemed like that was the call, but... Then you didn't stop, but maybe that was the old habitual yeah. voices.
0: Yeah, the the way I interpret it is that the men in my life, the voices are the old voices giving bad advice, and so I'm thinking of this, you know, and I can relate it to some of my own experiences. I'm thinking of this as these in the house, you know, it's like we have the people in our house in our habitual life, uh, you know, basically say. You know, you know. Uh, don't go off on a retreat. You have to take care of me, <laughs> or don't do this. You know, or stay and I need you, or whatever. I mean, that, I'm tending to interpret it that way. Like I had an experience once where I felt a strong call to take about a year and a half away from my. I was at that time teaching in a graduate school, and I just I kind of had, had enough. <laughs> And I wanted to, and I was also doing a lot of things. I was, on a, I was on the board of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. I was co-editor of a journal. And I just wanted to get away and have a kind of time away for a longer time, like a year and a half. And um, uh, quite a few people, including in some of those organizations, I was told, if you leave the journal, it'll fall apart. Right, you know, you know, basically take care of me, mend my life. That's how I was tending to interpret it as, as like the voices, kind of almost like codependent voices, a little bit, yeah. Because they're clearly in the poem; they're clearly part of the bad advice, right? Yeah. Please, yeah. In my reading of this poem, I sort of little closer.
1: I sort of feel as though it's
0: very compressed amount of time
1: almost like an aha moment yeah and that's how i respond to it and i know those moments so yeah. that's sort of what i felt when i read
0: it yeah yeah what i what i love is that the journey can happen in 10 seconds one hour one month three years right It's it's uh, well is that where you were going? That can happen very just in short time. Yeah. Just uh, you know, you just go somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. We well, just have an insight. Insight. Where do the insights come from? Out of the blue sometimes. You know. You know. This is crazy. You know, or they just come, or like, I think I need to um, get away for a while. Yeah. Others, please. Yeah.
1: Sure. Um I have a question about the journey within a partnership. Yeah. Um I've just been thinking a lot about how, you know, I I can only control myself and yeah. um it's not reasonable or helpful in a relationship to, you know, force someone to go on a journey with you or take their own journey, but yeah. also about, you know, wanting um, that mutual kind of growth and exploration and change. So yeah. I wondered what you Talk. Well, we
0: could, we could do about two weeks on that one. <laughs> uh, but what's interesting is that uh, you, you may have, many of us may have a sense of um, being in a partnership where, you're, uh, where you see the partnership as itself a kind of journey. Right? It's a journey together. And yet you also have your individual journey right like how do, and one way to look at it is how do you bring together the individual journey with the partner journey right or the family journey right and because they're going to be obvious whatever we call it tensions or differences between them how do we navigate that how do we have uh, a relationship where there's plenty of room for my individuality and me having my journeys Uh, and avoiding, you know, and again, a lot of the growth would happen when you come up against conflicts related to that, right? There's a lot, you know, it's, um, you know, again, in doing one-on-one work with people, it's extremely common for me to hear people going on retreats and how they negotiate different issues with their partners, (laughs) right? It's extremely common, right? And how do we, how do I do that? And, How do I, you know, and so it's uh, beautiful if both partners can share that sense of journey and have a mutual understanding and also know, you know, have some sense of uh, what is the partner's journey? What are the typical issues, struggles that come up? You know, and we have, we sometimes have uh, day longs on that here. And I don't think we've had retreats, but yeah. But so it's a great question. And I hope that, that starts to get at it, right?
2: Yeah. Um the uh, different stages of the first a Little closer. The first stage um it's it's kind of like you have a lot of dukkha yeah. in your life. And it was kind of interesting what you said about the Buddha. He was just living in this great experience in a protected environment. Nothing was negative in his life. It was like he was growing up in Marin. And uh, <laughs> and then but there's he had an immense amount of dukkha. He knew there was something more. And then on the fifth step, there's a purification process. Yeah. And what I wanted to, to note was that like, even in these classic examples of journeys like Homer's um, the Odyssey with Ulysses. He leaves for ten years from his wife, and it's just one disaster after another. And I did, I did this, you know, when I broke out of my job in Santa Fe and stuff. I had one disaster after another, and it was great, you know, it was a real purification process because it yeah. brought me back to the Dharma and realizing how impermanent everything is. And it was just massive amount of dukkha. I was, you know. Doing my, I was treading water.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a thank you. There's there's a lot there in what you say. I, you know, I, I would think that the um, the first stage, which I was just calling being with the habitual and the ordinary, I think it could be either quite pleasant or more painful. I don't think it's necessarily connected with. It's connected, we would say, later with a certain level of suffering, but it's a kind of suffering that we don't realize it's suffering so to speak. Um, but but being with the ordinary can be very pleasant, privileged, comfortable. It can be a hard life, right? But also, again, so many demands on one's time and energy that you don't have any horizons, right? So I think that first stage of being with the ordinary could be more pleasant, can have the whole spectrum from, although... Um, Although some of the extremes, I think, start to wake people up. I, I went to uh, college and met quite a lot of people from wealthy backgrounds, like very wealthy, like famous wealthy people with you know their parents were heads of corporations or something. And uh, most of them were not happy at all with that life. And actually a lot of them rebelled in very creative ways against those lives. It was very interesting to see. That they had known that, and they had known that those lives had a certain amount of emptiness, so to speak, not in the Buddhist sense, but, um, you know, meaninglessness. And so I think that first stage could be the whole spectrum. But then I think what's interesting, like you say, is that um, when we leave the ordinary, uh, it can be challenging and it can be purifying and be interesting to look at the odyssey in terms of this model, you know, and what, what's the vision, you know. Uh, it could, could be a not fully spiritual journey. It could be a different kind of journey perhaps, but, but, but just to note that, uh, you know, going on the journey doesn't mean things go according to your wishes, <laughs> right? And you can have, you know, what you were, you were framing as purification, gosh, that didn't go well. That year, oh wow, that didn't go well. But I can see that I learned something. That's what you're saying. Just like the Buddha did six years not finding what he was looking for. That's a lot of time. That's full time looking and not finding. And again, it's not brought out so much in the stories that there were really difficult, unpleasant, hard times that the Buddha went through. Self-doubt, physical difficulties, you know, almost dying, right? And so that occurs, you know. It's that's going to be dependent on circumstances. But I think to go through this process and not have a certain amount of difficulties, you know, it's like it's like the um, it's like that story I sometimes tell from Rachel Naomi Remen, where the young man who had a big loss, like of a, a limb, has a drawing, and he says, you know. Has a drawing of himself as a shattered vase, and then he later amends it and, and shows that where he was really injured, that's where the light came through. That where the, that that with the proper perspective, this is really what the poems were saying by Hafiz and by uh, uh, David White. That the actually, uh, as we would say. I learned so much from that difficult experience. I hope I never have it again. <laughs> Something like that. But, but, there, but we can see, you know, a lot of what the spiritual journey helps to do is to frame everything as learning or potential learning so that even the difficult experiences can be sources of learning. Because if they're not, like, what use are they? All right. So thank you for that. Maybe last one. Okay, and then we'll, then we'll finish up.
1: First of all, I just want to say um, I'm really grateful um, to be here and for everybody here. And um, your teaching um, just really resonated with me. And um, um, what was interesting is that during the meditation, um, I had this amazing visual of um, myself swimming in like this big pool of water. And the pool of water represented the difficulties. Mm. And, you know, and, you know, at first I came up and then I, I just looked at it and then I jumped back in because I knew that, you know, that's where I would find just my awakening, my, just by sitting and being with it, you know, rather than, you know, drowning in it, like being at peace and all of a sudden the water, it was, it, it was um kind of like a black, muggy water, but then it turned into like this clear blue pristine water
0: yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. that 's quite an image, yeah
1: yeah, it was really beautiful
0: yeah i mean' it, that's, again, on this journey, uh, those kind of images are very, very helpful, you know, I know in some psychological approaches, they might invite you to uh, if you if you 're into drawing to do a drawing of it and keep it in you know keep it nearby, yeah, but okay. so as something to inspire you. But those images, uh, for many of us, come from the psyche at these moments. So we might have images like that, or they may come from dreams. They can come right there in the moment in meditation, an image like that, and very, very, very helpful, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it is. Yeah,
0: and, and, and also the way that you could frame it, because you could take that same image and see it primarily negatively, right? Mm-hmm. But, but that wasn't what was happening. Right, so it's uh, thank you for sharing that because it's, it's something it brings out something I didn't really give much attention to. Is a lot, lot of things I didn't give so much attention to, but the sense of that the images that guide us may be very important. You know that they're images and visions and so forth that can be very helpful. Yeah. Again, that can come through dreams, through visions, and some of us it'll be more like a word, you know, a phrase that comes in our mind or something like that. Some we we each learn with different modalities. Some of us more visual. Some of us maybe more cognitive. Some of us more a felt sense in the body and so forth. But that's that's quite something like that that gives us some way of holding what's happening is really crucial for this. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Great. So let's let's sit now to close. And my invitation is to. Uh, if you wish, bring this framework into the next week of practice. And we'll come back uh, uh, hopefully we'll come back next week, and we'll uh, we can share uh, some of what we've explored. but see, see how many of you feel like this could be helpful to remember every day for the next week? Yeah. And maybe just reflect on it and, and let it maybe guide how you are on a given day. So just reflect now how you might do that, how you might apply the these stages. Or even if there was just one insight that you might want to bring in. Then we'll close as we typically do by remembering that we practice very much for ourselves but also very much for others and may the fruits of our morning together be supportive for our own lives, but then directly and indirectly for the lives of all other beings Ultimately, we offer the benefits of our morning to all beings, which includes us. So thank you very kindly, and to be continued. (laughs) The journey continues. (laughs)
2: I brought two
1: guests today, so that was really nice. They enjoyed it a lot.
0: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit
2: dharmaseed.org slash donate.